Tadeus, welcome to the Judge McCall podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Torsten. Hey, absolutely. Um, I looked into you a little bit, and uh, there's uh, two books that you wrote uh, that stood out and uh, got quite a bit of recognition. One is where you talk about what role does religious pluralism have in society, how nation states should actually be constructed, and is that even possible, which we all think it is, right? So that's, kind of, I guess, the consensus. And the other um, book that I took a quick look at is um, how Catholicism really um, fits into modern society and what, what happened to Catholicism, um, because it went through so many changes, at least in public perception during the last 100 years. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. And you also just in the before when we spoke earlier, you mentioned um, a couple of other topics that I think are really relevant to today's discussion about what's going on in the world. So maybe my, my, my first question is, how did you start with philosophy and how do you select those topics? So w why are certain things closer to your heart, like those topics we just talked about and others uh, that you come across? And why do you feel others are not as relevant to you and you just leave them by the wayside a little bit? Well, I, I started out um, in college as a pre-med major, math and science. Um, towards my junior year, I was reading, and I wasn't practicing religion at this point. I was kind of a Nietzschean uh, in, my, in my behavior and thought, even though I didn't know who Nietzsche was. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was sort of a, I was a de facto Nietzschean, living for extreme, extreme experiences, trying to defy uh, the status quo, um, you know, uh, trying not to be a conformist, all that. And I was searching, though, at that point, and I, I actually read one particular book which sort of opened up a whole new world to me and was called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Have you heard of the book? I have not. No, I have not. So The Screwtape Letters are fictional letters written from uh, a devil in hell called Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. And the whole book is uh, about how to, how to get this one particular individual into hell. And so what Lewis does is he, he incorporates a lot of uh, social commentary and spiritual truth in this. But what happened to me when I read that was I thought, wow, this could be true. There really might be this spiritual world out there of, of truth, of comprehensive metaphysical spiritual truth. And I, I really felt the, 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 the reality of that from this book. It really, it really floored me. And so at that point, I got really interested in reading, reading these things, um, reading spiritual works, um, of Lewis and uh, other other theologians, and that got me interested in moving away from the sciences into philosophy and theology. And so, um, I then uh, enrolled in a program called uh, Saint John's College uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, which teaches the great books only. They're one of the first great books colleges, and I took the master's program there and read through the whole canon of great works all the philosophy, theology, literature, history that I didn't really get uh, undergraduate. Um, as I was going through that program, I discovered Plato, who became, uh, I just fell in love with his writings, especially The Republic. And what really floored me was his discussion of democracy in Book 8 of The Republic, where he basically says that he depicts democracy as a kind of relativistic carnival of everyone doing their own thing, and everybody's happy and self-satisfied except that it's the beginning of tyranny for Plato. Because what happens is, is in that vacuum, the tyrant uh, is born. And the tyrant is completely a slave to his passions and makes everybody else enslaved to his will. And that just floored me. I, ne I never read anything like that. And it, he also described the way in which the political order is 
uh, a kind of macrocosm of the order of the soul. And that was also uh, new to me. And that got me interested in political philosophy. And uh, I had also become interested in the Catholic intellectual tradition, particularly its philosophical tradition, culminating in St. Thomas Aquinas. So I went to Catholic University and, and took 12 courses uh, in, for my PhD, uh, a lot of them on St. Thomas. Um, I discovered Alistair McIntyre's writings at this point and his radical critique of secular liberalism. Um, and I also discovered the social encyclicals of the popes, especially Leo XIII, um, where he talked about what a Christian political order looks like and should look like and how it connects to the truths of the gospel. And so at that point, I decided I wanted to write um, my dissertation on uh, what I call in my, in my book that came out of that, the political problem of religious pluralism. Um, looking at Plato, looking at Aristotle, looking at Aquinas, looking at Jack Maritan, Alistair McIntyre, John Rawls, uh, and seeing what the problem really was uh, in our culture. Uh, and, and that's what I tried to um, figure out in that book. That sounds fascinating. I mean, those are, I, I, I feel I've only even heard of a subset of those books and I've only read a couple um, of them as well. Um, this sounds really fascinating. When, when we look into, let's say a popular opinion is that political pluralism, so the, the, the ability to encompass all kinds of religion into one nation state, kind of what the, what the U.S., um, it kind of isn't because it's kind of based on a, on a Christian philosophy, but it kind of um, prides itself in this ability to absorb any, anyone with any kind of religion and have anyone that have a guaranteed um, ability to, to uh, practice that religion and bring it into this, this microcosm of what's modern um, America. First question would be, do you feel America is pluralist, is really pluralist as you would perceive it? And, B, why do you think it's not working out so well? Uh, the answer to the question of whether we have a genuine plurality of, and even, and even from the beginning of the founding, is genuinely pluralist, is, is no. Um, and you have to sort of think about what it means to be pluralist. Um, uh, you know, John Locke, in his letter on toleration, um, said that uh, the, the, true, the mark of the true church is toleration. Uh, he also said every church is orthodox to itself. And in his uh, other writings, maybe including that one as well, he, he forbid uh, both atheists and Catholics to be part of this new enlightened uh, social contract. The reason he did that is because he had a suspicion there that neither the atheist nor the Catholic could actually uh, abide by uh, the kind of implicit rules of the social contract. And what the rules are there is a sort of religious relativism. Um, in other words, uh, you, could, you could practice your religion, your philosophical doctrines, whatever you think about values, uh, in the civil sphere, in the sphere of private life. But when it comes to public life, when it comes to the laws, uh, when it comes to the, the sort of life of uh, the common good, it's the civil society that determines these things. Well, what that means, though, is that the civil society, the political uh, authority, has decided that no religious truth or institution, such as the Catholic Church, has any political authority whatsoever, has any authority to determine um, 
you know, uh, reality. Uh, it's like, like he says, every church is orthodox to itself. So um, in my opinion, Locke was, was pretty much an atheist. Um, and his, his Christian noises uh, were superficial and rhetorical. What he's really setting up was the first secularist, purely secularist state. And that is indeed what we have in the United States. It's not a Christian uh, nation. It may have been full, filled with Christian citizens from the, uh, the colonies, but uh, insofar as you have the Constitution and Declaration, what you really have is a secular regime uh, where religion is uh, ultimately privatized um, and, and the church has no political uh, moral authority whatsoever. And so what I mean by th saying that pluralism doesn't exist is that in order to um, you know, live in an American culture, you have to kind of adopt at least de facto or a modus vivendi, a kind of strict separation uh, of your deepest held beliefs um, and, and, the, and the common good and the political order. But this is, this is a, a very um, uh, distorted and perverted way of understanding uh, your religion. Um, the Catholic religion, for instance, has things to say about the common good, about the truth, and about the purpose of human life. It has things to say about um, what political authority is, where it comes from, and how laws should be made, and what, and, and what they should be ordered to. It's not a private institution. In fact, it has a higher authority than any state, because it was instituted by God himself. Now, when you, when you go around and interview Catholics about that issue, um, and I was first introduced to this way of understanding political theology by reading Leo XIII, specifically his encyclical called Immortali Dei on the Christian Constitution of States. Most Catholics and Christians and theistic believers in general, um, when you ask them the role of their religious beliefs, their practices, their church, um, in relation to public authority, political authority, the culture, they will give you an answer that is more or less Lockean which means that we're all Lockeans now, which means that we're not really pluralist, okay? It, we have superficial differences in our religious confessions, but we're all accepting a certain understanding of the relation of church and state, of the supernatural and the natural, of reason and faith, of nature and grace, of, um, of the sacred and the profane, we're all basically accepting a more or less Lockean Enlightenment uh, liberal view. And I'll just finish with this. Alistair McIntyre says, um, what we have in our society are radical liberals and conservative liberals, but we're all liberals. And there isn't a place in public discussion where liberalism itself is put to the critique, is put under scrutiny. Because what, what's really going on is our, our religion is big L liberalism. And most people are, are basically practicing denominations of big L liberalism. Catholic liberalism, Protestant liberalism, even Muslim liberalism, atheist liberalism. But the, the problem is, is that the, the, the main architectonic mode of understanding your own beliefs, their relation to your life, the relation to public life, uh, are all filtered through this ideology, which is antithetical, actually, to authentic, traditional, um, religious, and metaphysical truth. Yeah, so if I follow this correctly, what, and this is, this is certainly interesting, 
what do you say we don't have the pluralism because the 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 religions on its they don't really stand on its own they're not able to to express all the knowledge that they have they stop short of this and we have this this the super meta metaphysics um the meta ethics on top of that that actually determine the place of religion so religion cannot grow out of its place it's boxed in and every religion it's in a similar box uh, so to speak but the actual that the, the meta ethics that we have accepted is liberalism and that is something we don't really see right so this is something that came of the enlightenment we, we talk about religions all the time but we all feel and i i see this slightly different but i think the popular consensus is this is something that helped the old people it doesn't help us as much anymore it's still around but the utility has gone down that's kind of what i get from most guests here on the podcast they say if it even has an utility it's so small we can ignore it i i see that differently i feel there is quite a bit of utility still left but the actual superstructure now is how do we how do we determine and i mean there's a nation state there's a global government something that we all expect to happen in the well, years let, let, let me just on top of that right let, let me just jump in the way, the way you frame that it's very interesting um, most people don't see any utility now in religious belief and practice you see more utility that's exactly liberalism liberalism uh, makes everything a means to an end even okay. those things that are ends and so the idea of looking at religion as a useful thing, like even George Washington or John Adams, I forgot who was said, you know, um, religion is good for you know uh, American culture, keeps people good, and you know, okay, the whole idea of religion, of truth, of God Himself, is that it can never be merely a utilitarian good. It it is that which everything else is ordered to, including the political order. Uh, and yeah, so, but and I'm just so, reading. I'm just yeah. reading Nicholas Wade. That's something I, I, and I think it, it goes to the core there. I'm just reading Nicholas Wade, and uh, I think he's getting to the heart of it as as well as as I, I couldn't. He's really going into so what is the survival value? What is the the utility value? Not just in making us richer, but actually the survival value. So why are religious groups usually blessed with a higher fertility rate. So that means we have more likely ancestors of more religious people as non-religious people. There's especially a good example with the Roman Empire where in the, the more older Greek um, parts, the fertility rate was terrible, kind of what we, what we see right now. And in the new Christian population, oh. which was initially very small, there was a huge fertility rate. So they basically took over the Roman Empire from within. And uh, I, I strongly believe they, this utility, this survival is the ultimate utility out there because we all need to survive and our genes need to survive and i think this is this group evolutionary um uh, biology in terms of how which group can survive and i think it really illustrates this well i think this is where religion fits in so well and i think this is still true this hasn't changed and i think any kind of superstructure we put on top of this will never change that no i, I agree with you that those who get married and have indissoluble marriages um tend, tend to have healthier lives too that's true too um I mean, these are all the benefits, uh, you might say, of, of living a, a, a life that perfects your soul. There's going to be, um, you might say, fringe benefits. But again, w what we're dealing with in the area of religion um, is something that evolutionary biology can see in, from a certain lens. But ultimately, it's, it's not really what it is. It's not what it's about. It's not, it's, um, again, it's, it's what we're dealing with. So when you mentioned survival as being the only end, that's not true, or, or that's debatable at least. Uh, physical survival, um, obviously the, the Christian religion teaches us that the ultimate purpose of life is eternal salvation with God. This life is a trial. It's not meant to just be a long life or even survival. 
Um, and so, um, you know, that truth trumps all other truths, scientific, philosophical, economic, uh, evolutionary, bio biological. But let me let me just get back to something. I just want to sort of give you um, a couple instances of, of my thesis about the way in which um, consciousness is transformed by uh, sec liberal secularism, even in even in religious people. Um, the, the most caricature example is, is Mario Cuomo saying uh, in the 90s, perhaps I forgot it was that, you know, uh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but uh, publicly I support it. So we're dealing with an issue of something where you're, he's completely divided in his public life and his in his life as a governor. Um, uh, he's going to promote what what he believes privately is the per, is the murder of, of unborn babies because that's what he's supposed to do as as a good uh, American uh, politician. The other example is um, Justice Kennedy in Planned Parenthood versus Casey Supreme Court decision in 1995. Just Kennedy is a Catholic, and he he gave this um, this 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 statement as a kind of basis for this decision, which had to do with abortion rights. Um, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's concept of existence, of meaning, of purpose, uh, of the cosmos, and the meaning of human life. So if you think about this, um, that's like a first commandment. You have the right to determine reality. It sounds like Nietzsche almost. Um, and that is the basis of liberty. As uh, David Sh D.C. Schindler has uh, come out in a it's book. Very I, yeah, very I, I, I highly recommend uh, a book called Freedom from Reality by D.C. Schindler, a Catholic theologian. Um, he, he, he argues that, that freedom has become um, the ultimate end but what, what, what freedom is, is potency over actuality. In other words, the constant um, multiplication and availability of options. Each option is equally insignificant, non-teleological, non-authoritative. But as long as you have the option, you're in this perpetual state of potency to, to change your life, to, to make decisions, to change your gender, whatever it is. That understanding is a metaphysical understanding it's false. Um, it, 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 it basically is a kind of affront to the actuality of reality of God. It makes us determiners of reality. That's very well articulated by Justice Kennedy there. And yeah. so these are the deep metaphysical um, problems. The metaphysics, even before the spiritual, the metaphysics is what we're dealing with. We have yeah. a kind of liberal metaphysics that is uh, colonizing everyone's thinking and acting. And they don't even realize it. That, that's what yeah. I see. Yeah, I, I think this is a fascinating view. And I, I, I agree with you that it isn't really put out into debate as, as much. And, uh, you know, I just had Alexander Barton a couple of episodes ago. And something he, he's been pondering with is basically, when, when I read his books correctly, and there's a lot in there, is we're going to see reality more like quantum physics and what he means by this is quantum physics basically does away with this one true reality one measurable reality we, we suddenly have maybe multiverses we suddenly we, we can't really say where the particles are we know they are somewhere in that cloud but we can't measure them if we do they go it goes away right so i think there is there is in philosophy especially there is a way to deal with this this problem that the what's kind of the what's newton's problem right newton felt 
we can solve this. We can find the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is close to where God is. And once we find out the ultimate truth, we just we just scale up. And I think this is what we did with the with the enlightenment. But now we, we realize that there's so many different truths out there. So speed of light is a truth, but can we overcome it? Yes, there are a lot of different ways now. We also know that quantum physics on, on its basic philosophical challenges, it doesn't work with any of the truths, you know, spiritual, spiritual or physical. The, the physics can't, I mean, if, if you're a modern day physicist and want to describe um, quantum physics, you, you sound like a crazy person. You sound like, or you're some crazy philosopher. You sound worse than, than Lenin. And um, what I'm trying to say is, what do we challenge? If we say, if we challenge or if we, we adopt this view that there is not just one single reality, is quantum physics and the way we see the world there, which is, and seemingly from my point of view, ultimately that there is no single truth, there's no single worldview. Isn't that what we do with religions right now? And don't we have to look, don't we have to be guided by quantum physics and philosophy? Because ultimately we have to solve that. Yeah, well, I think a good author on this question is Wolfgang Smith. Uh, he's, wrote, he's written quite a bit on uh, quantum physics and theology. Um, and uh, he makes a distinction between the mathematical modeling uh, in the natural sciences, especially in the modern enlightenment um, modeling view, a representational view, and the sort of deeper um, perennial philosophy understanding of reality. Um, there, there is, of course, uh, an interplay between human knowledge and interpretation and perspective and, and, the, and the real. Um, and it's not as if the enlightenment view from nowhere, where all we have to do is come up with this... Um, airtight, uh, universal, uh, cultureless, historic, historyless, um, perfect Cartesian kind of modeling where we can then see reality as it is, regardless of perspective, regardless of religious belief, regardless of our historical cultural situation. I think the good thing about post-modernity and, and I guess quantum physics is that it's taken away that naive realism uh, about how we encounter reality. But I think we go too far when we make statements like you made, where there's more than one reality or there is no architectonic, uh, you know, metaphysical reality that we can know as it is. Um, I could just give you a, a, a pretty clear example of how that's self-contradictory. Um, the law of non-contradiction in logic can never be violated. Um, so no matter what you you, you may think that physics is telling us the statement that for instance there is more than one truth okay that statement itself is either true or false um if it's true then it's then 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 that statement itself is either true or false about that multiple reality but now well, you have the easy the easy way out would be making it um making it relatable to the observer kind of what, what einstein did right so if if you move if the if you take the 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 movement of the observer into account, that's yes. how suddenly the 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 space time was suddenly not the same. I mean, space time is still the same, but the, the time works differently depending on how quickly. You well, move. but but and see that that's, that's kind of an easy way out. But but that statement itself is not perspective. Uh, it's not perspectival. It's absolute. Uh, to say something like um, reality is is uh, is determined to some extent by the per perceiver. Is that statement itself uh, perceptually determined? Because if it is, then someone else might have a different perception and not accept that. 
what I'm getting at is you, oh, you absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You, you fall cool. you yeah. fall against the rock hard reality of the law of non contradiction. Aristotle said uh, in his um, in his in his Organon um, when he dealt with uh, the law of non contradiction, um, he did not try to prove it to demonstrate the truth of this principle. The principle is something cannot be and not be at the same time in the same respect. Okay, X is X. Yeah. Uh, X is not not X. Okay, this sort well, of what do we do about the multiverses? Say, <clears throat> well, say, let's assume for a moment the multiverse is is all the possible options in your life and all of our lives they exist somewhere else. There's an unlimited amount, an infinite amount of universe. Let's assume it for a moment. It's a theory and it might never be proven. <laughs> Whatever. Well, let's assume it's true, right? And we what what that actually what the universe could be is just a quantum computer. So we're just a random fluke. Could be could be very different. Anyways. So if, if we say it's true in that universe, and we by definition can't see outside the universe, but the opposite is true in the next universe, just like a one, one consciousness away, what do we do about that fact? Um, because the highest order that we look at are all the multiverses at the same time. And maybe there is an observer that can see all of them at the same time, not us. We are limited to one universe. All what right. do we do about that? I, I'm, I'm still, I, I don't think you're tracking the fact that, that you, still don't, you still can't escape the law of non-contradiction. Okay, if you have one, if, if I say to you that there are multi universes and we can only understand our one universe, um, you should say to me, well, that might that statement itself that you could only know one of the multi universe, one of the universes, multi universe, that that statement itself is only true for the one universe we're in. In another universe, it's true that we know all the universes. Now, when you think about that, um, when you think about that, sorry, I had another call. When you think about that, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's self-contradictory. Um, it's either the case that we are limited to our perspective to one universe or we're not. It's not the case that in some other universe that doesn't apply. You, you really can't deny the law of non-contradiction. So let me just get to what I think is the upshot of, of quantum physics and all this. It's this that we do have limited understanding of reality. Uh, a great book on this is Mysticism by Evelyn Underhill. It's the classic work on mystical knowledge, okay? Um, you read way more than I do, and it, it, I read a lot. <laughs> well, no, yeah. we, re we read different these things. These are awesome recommendations. No, these are awesome recommendations. Um, Mysticism by Evelyn Underhill, um, a, beautiful, a beautiful, amazing work by the great uh, mystical writer, um, English writer, Anglican. Um, but what, what she gets at in that book, and, and this is also uh, in treatises about negative theology, right? St. John of the Cross, for instance. Um, we certainly have um, limited understanding. Reality is inexhaustible. Reality is, in a, in a certain extent, infinite, okay? Because it reflects the infinity of God. Now, at the same time, that's true. God has given us the power of intellect, the power of human reason, um, which is able to understand reality as it is um, accurately, not perfectly in the sense of exhaustively, comprehensively. We never stop learning. We never stop plumbing the depths of reality. In heaven, I believe, we will spend an eternity inquiring and thinking and questioning and wondering um, the beginning of philosophy is wonder, because we wonder why the thing is the way it is. That wonder 
uh, is concludes in knowledge. Okay, where we figure out the cause of the effect that we're wondering about, whether it's a balloon going up or whether it's quantum physics, that knowledge that we have uh, is maybe accurate, but it's provisional in the sense that there may be more truths to learn about this. But this is, but this this way of understanding knowledge as asymptotic and inexhaustible is not the same as postmodern skepticism. Um, I mean, there is something called the scientific method. There is something called certainty in metaphysics and philosophy. Uh, it starts out in the principles of logic. It's not, it's not like there'll be another universe where the, the law of non-contradiction isn't true. That's unthinkable. It's unreal. Um, I mean, it's like saying God can both exist and not exist at the same time. And now we know this because of quantum, quantum physics. What quantum physics, as, as far as I understand it, is teaching us is something about the mystery of being and something about the indeterminacy of matter. Now, that's something Aristotle knew 2,500 years ago. Aristotle said matter is intrinsically potency. It has no determinability. It's determined by form. And insofar as form is never going to fully uh, be able to uh, bring matter to perfection in this life, there's always going to be a certain kind of uncertainty or uh, uh, imperfection in our knowledge of material objects, as matter itself is indeterminate. I think that's what quantum physics is telling us. There's an indeterminacy in 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 matter. As you get to the molecular reality, I think that's the problem that we can't perceive reality, or that that reality becomes things that we are not used to. Obviously, we will find a higher level of abstraction, and then we will maybe come back to the ultimate place of reality. Can I, can I hold yeah. you there for one second? Yeah, go ahead. Um, postmodernism, a lot of people describe things as postmodernism that it isn't, and I think a lot of stuff is in postmodernism that people don't realize. Okay. So, well, what's your reading of postmodernism? Not necessarily what we just talked about, just what is reality, but what do you feel is, is, is really what... What did it contribute to, to where we are right now in philosophy? Or maybe there isn't anything useful. Well, um, in one way, postmodernism is nothing more than another mode or level of modernism. It, it, it's not its own thing. I, I think it takes certain um, uh, patterns and trajectories that are found in the Enlightenment and brings them to a logical conclusion. So... For instance, if you want to say that Nietzsche's the first postmodern, perhaps, right? Um, what did Nietzsche do? Well, he took the Enlightenment inheritance um, of this kind of uh, evacuated, uh, very, very um, anemic understanding of reality that, that came from Enlightenment science and social sciences. Um, and he looked at it and said, you know, this is, this is a house of cards. This is, this is merely just a prejudice of a kind of uh, the last man, this bourgeois, emaciated, uh, you know, um, non-heroic, non-tragic uh, person who wants to be able to control his, his life and, and have comfort and security. Um, and Nietzsche said, look, th this, is, this is just inhuman. This is disgusting. This is aesthetically ugly. Uh, and he was right in that sense. Now, because the secular enlightenment ideology was a kind of reductionism. Um, it, it, it looked at all those uh, elements of human life, uh, the mystery of life, drama, religion, the sacred, uh, the Dionysian, and it tried to kind of neuter it with a kind of uh, soft Apollinarian Apol Apol um, 
you know, mathematization and, and, and reductionism. It is disgusting. Um, and he called and he said, the last man blinks, right? God is dead. Uh, do you know what we've done? Do you know how to uh, drink up the sea? And, and he blinked. The last man blinks because he has no comprehension of even Nietzsche's question. So in that sense, what Nietzsche was pointing to was a kind of dead end in the Enlightenment. Now, what Nietzsche did, though, was he, instead of trying to return to or progress towards a more adequate notion of human reason and human will, um, he abandoned the whole desire to, of truth at all. And he really rejected the creaturely status of human beings. He basically said, we're not even creatures, we're gods. Um, the, 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 the whole sort of uh, perennial uh, understanding of, of humanity, beginning with, with, with Homer, but, but proceeding from Plato and on, is that we are participants in uh, reality. We are creatures in a, in a reality that we can know and love and perfect ourselves in. Uh, Nietzsche wanted to throw all that out because he, he saw it uh, resulting in, because his misreading of Christianity, uh, resulting in um, uh, uh, a kind of inhuman, um, uh, bloodless kind of, kind of enlightenment science. Well, that's, and, and Heidegger had the same critique, right, um, in, his, in his writings. But, but, but I think what Nietzsche did was he threw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were, to use a cliche, um, because in the end, we can't, we can't defy reality and determine it. It's there. It beckons us to conform to it, to participate in it, because ultimately it's the reality of God. And so um, postmodernism, in, in, its good, in a good sense, tr tries to tell us that there's a kind of mystery and um, uncertainty in our human knowledge. In a bad sense, postmodernism then becomes the enlightenment uh, on steroids when it makes claims like there is no truth, there's only perspective. Um, th there is no ability to, uh, to have, uh, you know, metaphysical knowledge. These are dogmatic ideological certainties, the kind of certainties that it was supposedly upset about in the enlightenment. Right. I don't know where you read those out. Um, I mean, I, I read some Foucault's and Derrida, they definitely don't mention this. So the idea that there is no truth, there's multiple truths. Yes, but there is no truth. No, or there's maybe that's that's what you're saying, just in different words. So maybe that's that's what, what, where the confusion comes from for myself. Um, but when I read Nietzsche, do I feel he is? And I, I just read the 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 Thus book Sustra uh, yeah. last week again, and I felt, man, this guy's depressed, and he's going to the he's going up into the months, he's going to the cave. He comes down, he's like, oh man, these people don't get it, right? <laughs> I feel he's not seeing, and that surprises me that you you. Yeah, you totally, well, I don't know enough about your model of thought, but I felt like he is, he is too critical of what's going on in his own social environment or what's going on in Germany at the time, right? In sure, Germany, right, yes. And he attributes this to Christianity, which might be true or not, but I grew up in Germany. I know these people are very secular now, and they still live in the same very small-minded, yes, not great environment for someone who has a philosophical mind or any kind of inquiring mind like Nietzsche. So I think he, he attributed all this to Christianity, which I think is not true at all. Um, there's a lot of distinctions you should have made. And I think he, I don't know what it was, maybe he didn't have enough social content, he didn't have enough people, not enough statesmen, not enough um, bishops to talk to. He never got there because there's a lot of greatness in, in what the Old Testament and New Testament can teach us. 
And he was seemingly never interested in this. That's how I read a TSC. Maybe he, he was, and then he got really disappointed. He never wrote about it. But in his books, I never see, he never explained the greatness of Christian thought. No, he didn't. He, he mis he, look, he had a problem. He was raised by his sisters. He, I mean, um, look, there's a lot going on psychologically, but, and I do, I do admire Nietzsche's spirit in some ways, but it ultimately became demonic. I mean, uh, in other words, we have to always remember that the word became flesh, logos, the logos, okay? E. Michael Jones is very good on this. He just wrote a book called Logos Rising on the history of logos and the history of, of um, what he means by logos is the being of things, the reality of things. Um, and St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the logos, the arche in Greek. Um, what this means is the ultimate reason of things, the ultimate reality of things. We are not determiners of this. We are participants in it. We are able to articulate it. We are able to live in it, participate in it. But ultimately, we are not its determiners. And the ultimate way of living, what we're here for, is to conform our wills to the divine will. Okay? And Nietzsche said, no. I am going to determine reality by my will and who wants to join me. Now that's ultimately satanic. Okay. That's ultimately satanic. That's ultimately um, a, a blasphemous rejection of God's reality. Now we don't want to idolize language. So Derrida, the deconstructionists, I've read Derrida. I understand what he's doing. He's saying that words are, um, are referencing other words we have to be careful not to idolize our linguistic apparatus as if it were the same as the the deep reality we encounter i can understand that um deconstructing um language uh might be a way of allowing god's reality to come forth this is this is what the negative theologians say this is what meister eckhart says this is what the cloud of unknowing says saint john of the cross um Catholic theology understands that although our language derives from and is able to penetrate into reality, because God is language, he is the word, we have to recognize that they're still created things. Our concepts are created. Our words are created. The uncreated um, is an infinite uh, distance between anything created. We don't want to become idolaters. So insofar as deconstructionism, postmodernism, quantum theory, however you want to put it, insofar as it works as a hammer to destroy idols, which mask and counterfeit reality, I think it's a good thing, okay? But insofar as that postmodernism deconstruction itself becomes an idol, a counterfeit, and deprives people of participation in God's reality, I think it could be demonic and evil. And so that's, that's, how, I, that's how I would put it. That's an interesting, interesting way to look at this. You know, I, I, I talk to a lot of Christians, and many of them are not practicing Christianity much. You know, they maybe on Christmas. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> I find this really odd. In the, in the, you know, I ask a lot of people, why did you kind of leave the Catholic Church, or why you end up practicing? And they're like, hmm, they don't really have an answer. But then they seem to know it's the right thing to do for them personally, right? And they seem to be in good company because when I go back to Germany, for instance, there's churches everywhere, but literally no attendance outside of Christmas. But what, what, what I find that interesting a lot, I feel like when I, when I read the Quran and it's really strict rules on idolatry, 
yeah. which I think makes a lot of sense. That to me goes all the way back to the Torah, and it's just taking it. Yes, it's spelling it out. The Torah has a too, but it's kind of it's not spelling it out as much. I don't know why. Maybe because there was a lot of little polyistic stuff going on during the um, early developments of Israel. Yeah, but I feel Christianity or the Israelites, <clears throat> not Israel. What I feel Christianity is so open to idolatry. There's saints, some there's saints everywhere in Christian history, right? There is um, things that symbolize, um, and I think Jesus itself is. You could argue that there's there's replacements for God all over the place in Christian history, and they seem to have no issue with this. So I feel like Christianity was always very easygoing on idolatry. They didn't really. Well, wait, 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 wait. I I wouldn't put it that way. Um... It's easygoing on incarnational religion, okay? So what, what Christianity tells us is that God comes into the very warp and woof of human life. He becomes a human being, okay? Um, he becomes a baby. Everything material, everything individual and idiosyncratic and particular and messy, God has now become one with, right? So that's where the Quran and the Torah depart uh, for Christianity. They, and Plato too, right? All of them would say that that's, that represents a kind of um, desecration of the divine to, to come that low. The Catholic Church teaches not only does he become a human, he becomes a piece of bread and a, part of, and a yep. drop of wine. The Eucharism, yeah. Yeah, and, yep. and these saints and these relics and the liturgy and the sacred sites and the pilgrimages and the sacraments, sacramentals, these are all a manifestation and um, a participation in that one incarnation. Now, that's not idolatry. To worship the human nature of Christ, okay, as um, as Francis ta taught us uh, that we should. No, but do. you can see the Pope or, or other institutions. Well, honestly, but hold it, on, it, let me just let me just finish yeah. my statement about to worship to worship the human nature of Christ is not idolatry because that human nature is intimately connected and in a sense one with the divine. Yeah. Okay, so it's not idolatry. Idolatry is when you take human concepts human language and and forget neglect the infinite difference between anything created and god and remember the church herself is both human and divine so in its human element it's going to be full of sin and messiness and betrayal and crime in its divine element it's pristine and that and that combination is there throughout history. If you want, if you want to reject it, you could become a purist like Calvin, um, or have your own little Bible-believing church because you reject the corruption. But remember, um, that's that's departing from the nature of the of the church that Christ set up, human and divine, with all its messiness. And it's very. I understand. Hard. I, under, I, yeah. I understand that, but it's it's. I find that interesting that you use the word idolatry in a, in a very different way than I would expect it. I know you're coming from a different standpoint. Well, let me know. That, well, how do you yeah. use it? How are you using it? Well, I, for me, it's always, and this might be not not the 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 official way, but it's anything that could be worshipped in place of God. Any, yes. Anyone who has divine authority in place of God. This okay, is what I, all the religions are worried about, right? I the agree Quran with that. Especially. Yeah, I right? agree with that. Yeah. So Muhammad is just this dude, and he got he got some he got some um, very special revelations from God. But actually, you know, don't worry so much about Muhammad. Really worry about Allah. And I think this is the Torah message. And Christianity went all the way to the other side. And it's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm just saying, then still saying idolatry, it's redefined if you say you, you, you're worried about idolatry in Christianity. Because it's already happened, I feel. Well, wait a minute. So the way that you worship God, okay, so the first, first of all, let's put it this way. Um, 
God himself wants to be worshipped through the mediator he's given us, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. Okay, and so... Um, I'll, I'll accept that from now. I'll accept that Well, from so, now. Yeah. okay, so if that's true, um, then God likes mediators, okay? He likes that. It, it, we're, the, the medieval understanding of the cosmos is sacramental. Everything is both a symbol, an image, um, a pointer, a participation in God, and it's also not God, okay? Um, the Father is the ultimate principle. The Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, but there's a kind of sense in which the Son reveals the Father, the Holy Spirit you know, participates in the love between the Father and the Son. The Trinity becomes man and Jesus. Jesus establishes a church which is physical and human, and there's a tradition, there's liturgy, there's sacraments. None of this is idolatry from a Christian perspective because yeah. all those things are mediators to the eternal father, Jesus himself being the ultimate participant. So, I mean, to me, it's very simple. The reason why I'm a Christian is because there's only one consciousness that was ever united with the ultimate per reality of things. That was Jesus Christ. He was that consciousness. Christianity enables me to be in, in, in intimate participation in that consciousness so that I experience the Father the way his son experienced. That's the gift of grace. Uh, they call it theosis in the Eastern Church, becoming God, deification. Christianity permits and, uh, and celebrates and, and is, its whole purpose is to deify every individual, to make us one with God, to make us God by participation. Jesus was God by nature. All of us are able to become God by grace. Now, if that's true, that's a pretty good religion. I would say your German friends who don't go to church don't believe that's true, or they don't want it to be true. They don't care anymore. They don't. I think they don't they're care. free riders. I think they're free riders. You know, they you you live in certain value systems, and you you feel like, and I think this was common in the in the Middle Ages is that warriors would go out, they would live a very cruel life, right? They would would kill anyone who comes their way, and they would take slaves. And then, but he always had a priest, and the role of the priest was to not just necessarily tell them what they should do. I mean, obviously, they would listen to him maybe sometimes, but he would really absolve them, and they would become Christians just before they die on the battlefield, right? So you have like, your last moments, and then you can go to heaven. I think those are the free riders, and I think this is a bit what we see in modern society. We have people who who kind of take the benefits out of it, but they're like, why would I invest in this? Because for me, myself, it doesn't make any difference in their, from their point of view. It's kind of like you're voting. Oh, yeah. This one vote makes no difference, right? Well, that's corrupt. That's, has that, that's that a corruption. That, that's a big corruption of religion to use it. Again, we get back to that original thing we talked about. What is it going to do for me, right? So a typical kid goes to mass and says, what am I going to get out of this? I'm not getting it. They, they look at it as entertainment. In other words, what you have is a kind of self-centered, self-absorbed, individualistic, almost narcissistic attitude where everything becomes but an optimal. Well, well, the Torah I, has examples all over. What do you mean by question, normal? What do you mean by well, normal? People question the benefit of believing in God. This is like Torah all over the place. And there's even people who say there's this one book in, I don't know where, where it is. I think it's book number 15. Um, where, where the whole book is about why would I believe in God? It makes no sense. Why would I restrict myself so much? And oh, got what, it. Yeah. What What do I get out of it? And I think this is very, very natural for everyone because right, you well, don't have this. You, 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 you need a certain self-centeredness, right? You need okay, to know it's natural yourself. in the sense that it's the beginning. Uh, we all, 
are you familiar with Kierkegaard's three levels of consciousness? Um, yes, yes the, but it's been a while. Yes. Well, so there's the aesthetic level, which is the lowest yes. level, where everything is just a sort of means to the end of kind of diversion, pleasure, aesthetic um, yes. sensibility. Then there's the conversion to the ethical, where um, now, now you, you give up your pleasure, your self-centered uh, desire for satisfaction, therapeutic well-being, all that, whatever it might be. And now you seek to live according to ultimate moral values. And, and, so, and you're not seeing those moral values as something that could do something for you. You are obeying it almost as if it were the end, not your own personal satisfaction, but conforming to that moral value. That's like Kant, Immanuel Kant kind of, the categorical imperative. But that's not the highest. The highest is the religious, uh, where, where you even transcend the ethical now. And, and that's Abraham. That's Abraham for Kierkegaard. Um, okay. because yeah. he, he overcomes the ethical. Now, what, what you're talking about with this idea of like, what is it going to do for me? That's still the aesthetic level. It's very low level of consciousness. Um, I mean, you're still looking at, at yourself as a kind of, um, it's like, you know, you're the center of the universe, right? I'm not saying that religious consciousness does away completely with eros. That's kind of eros, right? You're trying to be filled by something, right? Yeah. But the whole point of, of, of religious consciousness, and this is true of all the religions, I think, is to put you into the mode of um, a kind of uh, selfless uh, obedience to something that is absolute, which you know will fulfill you ultimately better than anything else. And you actually become kind of united with this. So you become a source of, of goodness to others. This is agape love, right? The love of self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Yeah. In other words, there's a great quote yeah. by Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, before he, yeah. before he resigned. He says, the, the eros desires agape. So in other words, the erotic love of the Greeks and the, and the pagans actually finds its fulfillment in the love of agape, which is self-giving love. So eros and agape are actually unified. It's not just one or the other, right? It's not yeah. like you have to be either the self-centered aesthete or the selfless saint it's actually that your ultimate desire to, for fulfillment is is fulfilled in the love of god um so anyway that's a paradox right it's a, it's a mystical yeah. paradox well I, maybe it's also the, the way of life right it's where the stages we go through from being very young and having a certain view on reality and then being old and seeing seeing obviously the same reality if, if we may say so maybe it has changed but we, we've come to different conclusions one thing I, I yeah. always goes on in my mind, and I don't know the conclusion. Maybe you've seen this, or maybe some people have thought about this. When you read Ayn Rand and her her objectivism, right? So it, it, yeah. that's more of a, that's more an economic theory than this than it is. But it's very very self centered. Yeah, right? how do you reconcile this with with Kierkegaard? Or you know, there is selflessness is the highest form of what you just said, right? Selflessness would be the highest form. I would just well, hold that. on. I, so there's two opposite extremes, and they're both wrong. One is the the the, the on Randian self-centered uh, individualism, where there's just ego. Get get over it. We're we're just egocentric beings who want uh, power and control and uh, termination. Forget the stupid That's loving of. Well, wait a minute, but, but, but she does dismiss um, mercy and, and love of others, right, as a kind of principle for life, doesn't she? I mean, yes, but, but that's more, she's focused on outcome. She's kind of a, you know, you do whatever you want, but give me the best possible outcome. And this is from her view of history. 
the best input for the best possible outcome. That's kind of well, what, what, what she's rebelling against is this hypocritical altruism idea. Yes. Altruism yes. is the opposite. Altruism is instead of acting for my self-interest, I'm going to act for someone else's self-interest. And it's it's yeah. irrational. Why would you yeah. act for someone else's self-interest? What about but yourself? This is public. Public is, is is the altruism, but yes. in, in, in private, it's give me more, right? So yes, it's kind yes, of the, yes. The now whole that... industrial pro, um, process and industry complex here in the, in San Francisco, right? Yes. So it's in, it's supposedly in the interest of homeless, but actually you just want to make your company who gets ninety percent. That's right. Rich. That's right. So right. all altruism is really hidden self-interest, right? So, but that's the problem with altruism is it's not true love, okay? True love is, um, St. Thomas Aquinas has a very interesting image for this. In the love of caritas, charity, what happens is, is your self extends its scope to encompass and include the good of another so that when you love another, you're actually loving yourself because yourself has now been identified with that other. It's almost Eastern, right? It's almost like uh, Hindu because there's just one self, right? Big S. Yeah. But all the major religions, seems to me, from the Eastern to the theistic, have this notion of escaping from the ego to some extent. Right? And that's what we're talking about. The limited, narrow, um, torturous desires of the ego that can't be fulfilled. How do you, how do you, um, how do you escape from that? And the, and the first step is to want that escape. It's like the addict who recognizes that he's at the bottom and his addiction is just endless and infinite and, and insatiable. And so he desires another mode of consciousness, something other than the addictive. Now, maybe he becomes addicted to religion or something like that. But at that point, he's not yeah. transcended. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know. this, is, this, is, this is a very difficult call to make. It's something that I've been thinking about recently, and maybe that's, that's an old, old deal in, in, in philosophy. Uh, why are we getting so addicted so easily? Well, food addiction, addiction to sex, addiction yeah. to religion, could be anything, alcohol. Yeah. And there's tons of substances that we have discovered that all make us addicted. Yes. Coffee, another good example. Why is that? And why do we have that? And you could say, oh, well, it's these chemicals. But we had this be the idea that we want to get addicted. It just seems to be hardwired into our system. What I felt like is the addiction is like an emotion, right? So the, the, it's we it's too many variables. That's why we have emotions. Some, sometimes our, our rational mind can't solve it, probably most of the time, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. And but we still have to move forward. We can't just get stuck and stay in bed for the rest of our life, never leave our caves. That's why we have emotions, right? So we can solve really, yes. really complicated equations in a in a, in a heartbeat. And the same is maybe true for for addictions, is my little theory, because what are we actually motivated by? And we're not motivated. We're motivated by really complex stuff. There's very yeah. simple stuff and really complex stuff, long-term stuff. And how do we reconcile this? Well, maybe with addictions, because it's oh. better than having no motivation at all, being in our cave the whole day and just want to being suicidal. No, addictions at least drive us somewhere. And on the way, we maybe find something useful, right? We find out about something that's valuable to to other people around us, and we come up with some inventions because we want more coffee, right? We want it cheaper. Let's put it this way: we want more caffeine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I mean, it kind of it kind of makes addiction almost a coping mechanism um, for the complexity of life. I mean, yeah. there's nothing worse than being suicidal and having depression with no no attractions whatsoever. So maybe addiction is a way of um, um, at least getting out of that and giving your sense. I mean, but I, I guess I I feel like in the end we're we're going to be addicts to the day we die because um, the, the the addictive mode is more or less the, the, the mode of somebody who hasn't completely fulfilled his spiritual nature. Um, 
I don't think Jesus Christ was an addict. Um, I don't think Mary, the mother Mary was an addict. Um, I think addiction has something to do with sin. In other words, choosing the particular good uh, over the universal good. Um, Boethius is very good on this. Uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. That's one of the classics of uh, philosophical tradition. He, he was a fifth century um, Roman uh, curator and, and Catholic. Uh, he was killed, executed for um, supposedly betraying the goth uh, king at the time, but he was set up. Anyway, he wrote a book in prison called The Consolation of Philosophy. And he said, um, you know, Lady Philosophy comes to visit him and he says, come on, Boethius, you're, you're, you're crying and whining because you don't have your freedom and you're going to die. You have everything you need. And Boethius says, what do you mean I have everything I need? He says, you have the truth. You have the ultimate good. All you have to do is love it. And what she says is, is that all the particular goods in the world, um, they're all desirable because they are bits and pieces and participations in this universal absolute goodness, which we really desire. And the key to life is to desire that wholeness more than the particulars. Well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because it's not like there's this big ball of being and goodness that we could just choose like you know, on a menu, right? It's always this deferral, right? This yeah. deferral. And I think ultimately addiction can only be overcome by grace, the gift of God, and through prayer. I mean, it, it really can't be overcome by human well, effort. What know? I always feel like religion is a big error correction system. So it uh, has utility, but it's the error correction of, of pure self-interest. Which is ninety nine percent in my from my point of view the right answer for human endeavor, but one percent of the time it's really a bad idea because we need. There's lots of other functions of, of religions in terms of trust building, and but it is this error correction um, figure, and if we have this error correction in in religion, it obviously will once you could say once you ascend it to being properly religious, you don't need to be addicted anymore because you have you have uh, something to to orient yourself towards so you have real goals, right? It's more the more complex goals. The trouble obviously with that is, is that you have to accept something that's really old, that has 100% worked for our ancestors, or at least more than more, it has 51%, right? So I feel like they won the, in the casino because they read the right book. That's kind of my answer. But is that true in the future? Maybe most likely, but not necessarily so, right? So it's kind of like the, the past results of an, a mutual fund, they don't necessarily predict the future results. <laughs> yeah, Most yeah. likely they will still be true, but it could be that housing suddenly tanks and then we all lose a lot of money. So I feel that's that's another problem as more people join in and just, you know, those how march along and what religion teaches us and not the, the difficult stuff in the Torah, but like, the, you know, the 15 rules from Deuteronomy. If that's all they really do, then maybe it's not as useful anymore. That's what I'm trying to say. And I think this is also a postmodernist argument. If we all in this bubble and we don't really look out of it, then maybe the usefulness of that religion has expired. You need to push against, right? You need someone needs to discriminate against you. That's what I'm always saying. We need more discrimination because then our strengths come out. We have too little of this, right? We too, I know why, why we, we go into this mind bubble. But we need other people to push against us and be like, okay, this is good. And I mean, we can be good, right? But if religion isn't challenged anymore, or maybe, the, I don't know how you look at this, but I feel the, the persecution of early Christians really, it, it made it shine, it made it bubble, it made it spark. But if, if nobody's really interested in religion, that's kind of often what I see out there. People, this is like the 15th most important priority. Nobody really cares about religion either way, right? 
It may be a little bit because they say, oh, America shouldn't be 100% Christian. But besides, uh, people are not that interested in religion. I think this is the problem. It needs to be sexy again. And that can only happen if people really push against it. Well, I think it's happening, actually. Um, there's a movement in America called traditionalism. Um, uh, people, young people especially, having a lot of big families, going to the Latin Mass, um, being very much interested in St. Thomas Aquinas and John of the Cross and kind of a, a very robust, rich um, Catholicism. There's, there's a movement um, in political theology, too. D.C. Schindler is one of them, I mentioned, uh, Freedom from Reality. He has a book called um, Politics of the Real. There's a journal called New Polity. Um, these are people who are advocating for a kind of almost a renaissance of a medieval understanding of, of religion. Um, radical orthodoxy, John Milbank, um, these people. Um, there, there is this movement, and it, is it a mass movement? And obviously, obviously, it's not a mass. It's not a mass movement, but but there is a populist movement. I think among Catholics in America, for instance, there's a priest now named Father James Altman, A L T M A N. He has just been reprimanded uh, by his bishop Callahan in Wisconsin, taken away all his faculties. He can't say mass publicly. He can't hear confessions publicly. The reason this has been done is because he has been an outspoken uh, um, in his sermons and in his public life against abortion, against the Democratic Party for being supportive of abortion, against uh, homosexual behavior as a sin. He's also come against the uh, vaccine mandates and the uh, COVID-19 propaganda. Um, because of that, his own bishop has reprimanded him, doing, doing the bidding of the secular uh, kings, you might say, who, uh, who do not like to see this kind of dissent from uh, liberal, liberal secular cultural norms. And so yeah. he is being defended by a lot of Catholics, I mean, a lot of the people in his diocese. We have right now an elite of bishops in America who are really just kind of um, uh, middle, middle management bureaucrats uh, just trying to keep the status quo. And we have some renegade holy priests and holy la laity who are fighting against these bishops. So it's an interesting uh, drama going on right now in, in, in the American Catholic Church. Um, it, I don't think the same thing's happening in Europe exactly. There are some bishops like Bishop Schneider um, uh, uh, who, who are also, um, you might say, very rare prophets at this time, um, calling out the gospel truths against the... I don't see. Yeah, you know, um, that's that's really great. Um, and what what I'm missing, uh, what I've always been missing the last ten years, is a real public, um, a public um, debate within the Catholic Church or other churches, especially by the bishops, um, that they actually they 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 stick out the future of of their own church. Well, it's not their own church, but they are the ones elected to run it, right? Yeah. Um, and it's not happening. This public debate doesn't, it never comes to me. Maybe it's happening inside the churches and it's all good and it's like a political party. But, you know, we, we perceive political parties more like entertainment as a show. Right, but still right. there is an element of we, we put things out there, we see what happens. But this had never happened and from my point of view, and this is because I maybe only watch certain, yeah. um, only have a certain view on reality. It, I never see bishops and I want to see them, right? I'm interested in them, but I dare not, I... Um, Wait, what, what, what do you, can you explain to me, what, what would they be debating exactly? 
the future of their own church. And uh, like Elements, you just said that that they are doing this, but I, this is not public to me. This is not something oh, that no, you're constantly right. happens. You're right. In the it news. doesn't happen. Okay. The, what happens is is that those there's only a party line. It's like communism. Yeah. It's like there's a party line. That's it. Anyone who, exactly. who dissents from this party line, I mean, is there actually a public debate now on whether or not um, there should be mandated vaccines? No. If you, if you say you're against this, you, you're censored. You're canceled. Uh, yeah. Doctors and, and, and scientists and uh, politicians, anyone who go. I mean, what we have now, this is, gets back to the beginning. I was talking about this unreality. We have, we have this kind of totalitarian party line. In, on many on many issues, climate change and COVID nineteen and um, cancel that's culture. That's what was going on about, right? They were. That's where kind of what was the implicit assumption that are already baked in. That's what they were going on about, and kind of you know it, it turns now. It, it's there. It's it's other assumptions more from the political left that are just baked into the cake. So, but deep, the, see the problem with postmodernism post says on the one hand that it's against any imposed ideological truth on society and culture and human behavior and choices but on the other hand this is the problem with postmodern it creates a vacuum because you cannot you have to have certain natural law metaphysical truths as the basis of any conversation or political order if it's all up for grabs you know what happens and this is this gets back to the beginning this is what plato said you want to know what the per first mo postmodern society ever depicted? It's Plato's Republic, Book Eight, when he describes the democracy. Yeah. It's perfect postmodern playland. One day you choose to uh, walk your dog, or the other day you play your instrument. On the other, he, he, he and he says there's many many color. It's like a many colored uh, jacket. Socrates says something like that. Everyone has their own lifestyle, and everyone could do what they want. And right, right at the beginning, I'm sorry, right. There's a latent totalitarianism coming, and that's described in the next phase of the devolution because the tyranny comes right out of the democracy. And why is that? Why does postmodern relativism and skepticism and denial of any uh, overarching uh, moral or, or spiritual or metaphysical truth that we could know and abide by, why does the rejection of that tend to lead to what Benedict the Pope called the dictatorship, listen to this, dictatorship of relativism. The yeah. dictatorship of, that's a paradox. How could relativism be a dictatorship, right? Yeah, 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 it can. No, I can see that. But uh, there's a lot of good to this relativism too. So I'm not convinced, I, and especially I see this in the sciences and I see this in a lot of other fields where they, put, they have potential, this relativism, to be extremely good. Now, can yeah. you overdo it? 100% of you will. You know, this is America. We overdo everything. But then usually <laughs> we come back to the middle line. Well, I hope we, we come back. With COVID, I hope we we've done it, right? So yeah. it looked really bleak. And then we are probably one of the most advanced in the COVID response anywhere on the planet because we've overdone everything. But we've, we've also focused on what works, um, fortunately, finally. Um, I want to go back a little bit into political uh, philosophy. And that's one thing I think that a lot of people are they have fear about this and they don't really know how to think about that. But I think the, the, the Catholic church has a really good answer to this. And the, the, so we have this, the setup of nation states around us, right? So they, we don't really know why they are so successful. We can make up theories now, but at the moment of time, everyone got behind the nation states and they are the political thing to live with for the last 200 years before it was, you know, nobody even thought about nation states really, or maybe they thought, but it wasn't popular um, and wasn't widely adapted. 
So we have the system and it might be there forever or it might actually go into a world government. And what what a lot of well, a lot of people make that claim, and I think it's true, uh, pretty much anything you touch now is going to be a global problem sooner or later. We saw this with, with Al-Qaeda, right? So global terrorism just starts out in, in Afghanistan and tomorrow it's in New York. So there's more and more things that we see with global warming or not global warming, but it is a global issue. Uh, if we assume there is going to be a continuous drive for this global government, do you think that will happen? A, B, how could it look like? Is it modeled after the Catholic Church, who was kind of the first global government, kind of organized like the Roman Empire, but with the with the theology behind? And C, what should we expect? Should this whole relativism get worse? Maybe it gets better? What do we expect of, of how much subsidiarity will we see in there? So what will happen to cities? What will happen to states? What will happen to other countries? Will they all just become one super global empire um, but but how independent can we think about these items um, yeah these are these are some sophisticated questions i don't have a lot of on the ground experience or knowledge in these realms i i would just say that um i think we we just we pretty much disagree about uh, what's going on right now i i in terms of the 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 covid stuff i I don't know if you're familiar with the Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, um, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, and the kind of movers and shakers um, in these in these areas. They are planning for us what's called the Global Reset, um, which yeah. is a kind of nightmarish uh, Hunger Games type situation where you'll own nothing and be happy. Klaus Schwab said in a. Uh, video um and yeah. we will all be renters in other words serfs to this um technocratic uh regime uh of of ai and digital tracking and uh bio uh bio digital kind of uh technocracy to me this is a nightmare this is certainly not subsidiarity this is not democracy this is totalitarian global global totalitarianism the mean the likes of which we've never seen that makes soviet union look like disneyland that's the nightmare scenario that's being Doesn't planned. Doesn't mean by you have to accept it, right? No, no, no. I, that's I, my I, point. My yeah. point is that that's what these psychopaths want, and they've said it. They've stated it. They've come out. It's not even a conspiracy theory. They have told us what they want society to look like. It's got youth, and it's got a kind of um, eugenic component. It's got this nightmarish uh, smart city, surveillance state, biosecurity state. I mean, just look, just if you want to know more about this, the, the best, one of the best spokesmen for this is James Corbett. Uh, James Corbett is an uh, independent uh, journalist. He has a program called the Corbett Report. Very worth looking into. Maybe even have it on your program. Now, when you just said we don't have to accept this, I agree. This gets back to the positive. Remember you mentioned say something positive, okay? Yes. Um, there, is, there, is, there is a possibility now for a kind of resistance to this, to these elites. And if that were to happen, uh, if people were to find their spiritual center, um, their source, if they were to find their dignity and their rights, if they were to um, you know, stand up against uh, this, 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 the, the propaganda and the, and the totalitarianism that's coming to them in the name of safety and health and security and all this, if that were to happen, and believe me, there are a lot of resistance right now. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is one of the greatest heroes right now. Um, Children's Health Defense. Uh, Reiner Fulmich um, is another one to look into. F-U-E-L-L-M-I-C-H. He's a German uh, and Californian lawyer. Um, 
the, these two are our heroes. David Martin is another one. There are groups that are populist groups, um, grass, grassroots groups, uh, people defending parents' rights, children's rights, small business rights, um, health, health rights, um, health privacy rights, uh, autonomy, bodily sovereignty. Uh, and I guess there's also ones, uh, you know, New California State, for instance, is one trying to develop a, a new way of understanding how to run uh, California, which is subsidiarity, true democracy, not these elitists. So there is a, there is a movement, uh, 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 and it's growing. And it's, it's a war, I think. We're in a war. And so I don't know what's going to happen. It's either going to go in the nightmarish direction or in the direction of, of a true, beautiful, um, almost utopian, true democracy where truth and goodness reigns uh, and where people have, are, 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 tr are treated with dignity and respect. And I think that's not going to happen unless there's a spiritual revolution that's going to happen, that needs to happen. Yeah. And, and I, for one, thinks it's going to come through um, the grace of Jesus Christ and Our Lady uh, and something called uh, the flame of love, which has been prophesied. Um, but I think this spiritual movement is always is going to happen within the religions as well, um, where the people uh, reject their counterfeit leaders and the counterfeit um, Enlightenment last man religion. And, and really go back to the roots of tradition, their traditions, right? Not this yeah. counterfeit that we see. Um, I yeah. do feel, though, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know where you're coming from, and I think these are very valid concerns. What I feel, though, is, and that's a bit, bit, bit based on my experiences, creating a worldview that incorporates those things, but also incorporates the future, right? So the, the, the reality is always work in progress and you can say, well, maybe we just leave the things that work and we don't touch it. <laughs> that's, that's certainly an approach. And I think you also, we have to give people more credit than what it's due. Yes, we all go crazy in social media and we all are influenced by the feeds, but people are still people and they can make up their mind. It might take them a while. It might take them a few years, right? But they're not idiots. And, they they can filter out and the brain adopts really quickly to these to propaganda you know yeah. i lived in for just a few years on the socialist propaganda every single person that i i interviewed later and talked to later they knew that the official newspapers there were only like three or four they were all propaganda so you would wait did they know it at the time or only later yes no they all knew it the whole time uh, maybe not in 19 I don't know, 51, but he knew it in 1955. Everyone knew it, everyone involved. So you assume the exact opposite. Now, you still don't know what else is going on, so that's a problem, but you never believe what's in the newspaper that everyone knew this. Wow, that, that's good to hear. But you couldn't say it, right? You could you could not. I mean, you could say it to someone you really trust. But Do you think it. that's true now, though? Do you, I mean, I know I'm in, Marin, I'm in Marin County, California, and it doesn't seem like too many people recognize that they're being lied to. No, about <laughs> It's, it's, say you go to Alabama, I was just in Alabama, that would be a big, it's not a debate, right? Everyone's going to agree with you. And yes, it takes a while to trickle through the population, but people are going to get there. And doesn't yeah. mean they're going to be on the internet and be open about it, because then uh, cancel culture, yes, you've got yes. to be safe first, right? So if a silent you majority, it. you're saying, kind of. Yes, and I think this will drive, um, in the end, the, the major developments, and also we see what makes money, right? What what makes sustainable amount of money? And uh, Alexander Bart was telling me about this. You know, what influencers are doing seems to be very short-term because they're selling a reputation for money. That's great, but it isn't a long-term thing. The long-term thing is to get attention, is to get eyeballs, what people are really interested in. 
monitor that also will, will derive a real um a real um stream of money and this is i think what, what what we see out there if capitalism is so valuable and if this uh, democracy is so valuable then it needs to defend itself a little bit right so if it's the first little war and it already gives up and it's like nobody wants it anymore then maybe it wasn't that great in the first place yeah that's what i always say so if you know we would have all lost against nazi germany maybe because we deserved it because nazi germany was better and it turned out it wasn't better and we figured this out pretty quickly right it yeah right six seven ten years and i think the same is true now with china if china is so much better than we are maybe we are going to speak chinese and this is going to be fine i think it's not going to be our future but it's i mean not that i don't want to speak chinese but i'm saying the, the worldview that we have it needs to be challenged and it needs to overcome obstacles and we shouldn't just throw in and say, oh, the world government's all going to be the end. No, no. I mean, there's a lot going on that people can still um, change there. I like your idea. So what you're saying is these these represent challenges, um, even the evilest of them, to, um, in, a, in a sense, force people to, um, to choose what they really want to be, what they really want. And if they don't, then maybe they should be, uh, in a way taken over by these things or, or in other words I, I get what you're saying um it's a sort of opportunity to sort of um determine and if you don't ha if you don't have those challenges you don't grow uh i guess yeah, yeah that makes sense the it's problem kind of like is the roman empire right so it fell yeah. apart and nobody really knows why but it actually because nobody wanted it anymore and it was better to have roman ideas but outside the roman empire that's where they blossomed the yeah 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 like the germanic and all that yeah i mean um i guess my only question is what I find is so many people because of the fear that's been put into them um, and, the, and just they're, they're trying to make a living uh, with, with so much inequality and so much taxation and just, and just so difficult, especially with the lockdowns right now. I think people are in a trauma, traumatic state, uh, a lot of people, and I don't yeah. know how well they can actually accept challenges in that state, right? I mean, you know, um, and a lot of people don't understand what propaganda is. Even they, they, they can't, they can't tell the difference, or they like the propaganda. Um, they just like it. It, 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 it pushes some buttons on. It yeah, flatters it them. Comfortable, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, you might say, well, they deserve it then, but it's like I, I kind of feel like they're victims. Like they haven't been prepared well to determine. Um, not a lot of people in America have a good classical liberal arts education that teaches them how to think. I mean, they, they haven't been given that. Um, because they, you didn't need it, right? It was not required. What you wanted is a tech job. Where you basically, right, that's right. You, you don't care about anything else. You just do some coding and you, yes. you basically just repeat the lines you get from, from, from your head off. Yeah, yes. That's what made money, right? But it's maybe we are at the end of this cycle. Well, maybe I you're not. So. Maybe it I keeps going so. this way. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, what's needed more than ever are, are people who can think outside the box literally and 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 have a sense of their identity and history and culture i mean i feel like sometimes we're in the kind of 1984 uh, or brave new world a synthesis of the two i mean um 1787 i feel we're, we're more along that line but yeah who knows we only yeah. will know afterwards right so yeah. but yeah. What, I, i'm really happy that we overcame came and i go to other countries they have all kinds of, they depicted certain COVID responses, but they stuck to it for, for quite some time. In the U.S., all the states had a different approach. Well, only a few states had a very different approach. And, but we all came together now, and we have the, the best COVID response. We are over this, right, more or less. It might come back, who knows. But we found a solution that seemed to be the best for our economy. And that is gold. I mean, that's not an easy challenge, this, this COVID thing, especially mentally. 
Well, we'll see what happens. I, I don't trust um, I don't trust that they I think this was an opportunity uh, for a lot of bad people to use this um, in a way that gave them more coercive power and control um, and to, for rights to be taken away. So 9/11 was very similar. Uh, with the Patriot Act and yeah. all that. Um, so I don't know if they want to let go of this. I, I really do hope that you're right, that the people will um, ex respond to what's happening in a way that brings out the best in them. Um, but again, I, I do think this has to do with spiritual uh, awakening um, and uh, a kind of repentance, a detachment from from their idols and from their, from their addictions and to choose courage. I, I think courage is the most important Cur courage by far is the most important virtue right now for people, um, to develop. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. I hope that this is actually going to, going to change things to the better. Um, why don't we, why don't we see what happens in like six months from now and talk again? Hey, I'd love Hopefully to we all already see some good stuff. All right, let's do it. Sounds so good. This, it was awesome. Thanks for coming. It was so, so interesting. And I got to read up on all the books that you mentioned. There's all right. Some, some, some golden ones in there, I feel. Yeah, thanks for talking to me, Darson. Absolutely. Cheers. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Take it easy.